the temptation and then Christ's response. When I think about my own life as a kid growing up in Southern California, I think about my fear of people um, as a kid, a teenager. All of us went through those teenage years. Um, the, the peer pressure, right? The, the audience that we believe that we had to uh, dress for, uh, style our speech after, right? We remember all the, the music that uh, we, we pursued, whatever it is that we p- were pursuing at those times. I remember as a kid, I was, I don't know, able to drive, so something like 16, and so impressed with the right kind of jeans I'm supposed to wear uh, that I, 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 in Southern California, I went to five different malls looking for the perfect pair of jeans. Now, I'm the only one who is that, uh, that fashion snob, right? Am I the only one who has a, a peculiar way of thinking about your dress? Well, that's a sh- small little snippet of how often we can um, be impressed with the fear of man, the opinion of others. It comes in a subtle form to us, a temptation um, to yield, right, to yield to esteem something that we may not normally esteem, but we want to fit in, right? It's a pretty basic idea, isn't it? Here we have Jesus who is um, redefining the whole world of needs and wants. Think about that. Think about how often we use the, the word needs. That's a big, that's a canyon full of meaning in the word needs. I have needs, Right? Years ago, there was a psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Some of you may have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And some of it really makes sense. The idea that the basic idea of running water and food, that, that's a basic need. And, um, and as a, his hierarchy of needs looks like a pyramid. And so it makes sense that if you're going to minister to people, you might want to feed them if they're hungry, Right? But Maslow's hierarchy of needs moves on up to the final stage is called self-actualization, where you realize yourself, whatever that means. And the world of needs is a world of, of endless definitions and possibilities. And here we have Jesus in the wilderness going without food on purpose in order to prepare for public ministry. And he does this through fasting. There's an old saying in ministry that says you must disengage in order to engage. So he's disengaging out there in the wilderness in order to prepare prepare himself as a human being, fully divine, as a human being, to prepare for ministry. And the impression we have of this text is it's not just that the devil shows up at the end of the 40 days. The impression is that the devil is there continuously every day in some shape or form of temptation. So let's look for a moment at the context in which this falls, this temptation falls. 
This falls within the great story of our Bibles. There is a massive story underway, and to rightly understand this passage, we have to understand that we have always in the Bible been waiting for the faithful one who will come. Israel was called out of the wilderness, excuse me, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And various portions of the Old Testament describe Israel as God's son, a collective term, reflecting reflecting that God saw them as, as his special people. And the phrase develops, out of Egypt I called my son. But Israel is a faithless son in the wilderness. They were given redemption. They were given deliverance from slavery. They came out and they were trained at the base of Mount Sinai, and they turned in faithlessness against God and against Moses. The context is that we are always watching for the one God promised. And here he is, Jesus. Somewhere in here, somewhere in this text we're going to find that our needs are going to be challenged. We're going to find, as Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting Deuteronomy 8. We're going to find ourselves in this text somewhere the change that God is intending for us is found in this text as we, first of all, pause before we get on with a to-do list, before we get busy, this text bids us to watch Jesus. And that's always good for a church to do. That's always good for us in individual Bible study. Pause. Don't get busy. Don't think of what you ought to do. Just gaze upon Jesus and watch him accomplish salvation. You see, we as a church are self-consciously aware of what we could be preaching, what we could be teaching. We could be teaching moralism. Moralism is just nice exhortations to be good, stop this, start that. Moralism is not Christianity. Moralism is heaping upon people uh, lots of things to do. And we're pausing right here to just get the context and watch Jesus. Watch him do what? Watch him obey in the wilderness. And we're gonna, if you continue to watch him in the rest of his life, in Matthew's gospel, he will obey all the way to the cross. Why does he do that? He, as he says to John, Why is he baptized by John? And Jesus says, let us fulfill all righteousness. John, there will be no sinners brought to salvation unless there is a Savior who undergoes these waters associating with sinners. And so let us take long looks at Jesus. And that's not always easy to do, by the way. We're consciously, we're always eager to get moving and get going. And yet, real change in our lives happens 
when we do gaze and worship Jesus. Something happens when we are worshiping Christ. Something's happening. We see that our wants change. Our needs change. You mean there is, in in the heart of Christ, there is love for the Father such that he denies himself food after 40 days? What's going on in, in him? We're drawn to him. His dispositions, his heart attitudes, his dependence, as we begin to watch him, certainly we have to believe in him and receive him. But as we watch him, something begins to be formed in our, in our lives. What he wants increasingly becomes what we want. So let's just watch him for a moment. That's sort of the context. What we need is a second Adam. How does the Bible present humanity? Really in two, two big families. There's the family that's in the first Adam, and there's the family that's in the second Adam. That's really how the Bible unfolds. If you like a fancy term for it, it's called federalism. We are a federal head in Adam, and there's a federal head in Christ. What are we watching here as we see Jesus in the the wilderness? This is the second Adam, picking up after where the first Adam failed. The first Adam rebelled in paradise, rebelled in lush surroundings. The second Adam obeys in the midst of a wilderness. Watch him. Watch him as your second Adam. He's going to form a whole new humanity through his obedience. This leads us secondly to the temptation itself. What is Satan after? Now, I'll probably use the word devil and Satan kind of interchangeably. I want you to just notice right away that the Bible just presents the devil in a matter-of-fact kind of way. It's not very fashionable to believe in the devil unless you... uh, you make horror movies. I guess that would work for you. But really, the the idea is that you don't you don't the idea of the devil. We live in a modern world, right? We live in a world of amazing technology and all these kinds of things. And the whole this whole realm of this is antiquated, superstitious ideas, right? So uh, the Bible presents the devil as real, um, a spiritual entity, a spiritual being. And one who would plot and wish our destruction. The temptation itself is about who owns the world. Who owns the world? Various scripture would describe that uh, Satan is the ruler of this world. But these temptations send a, a huge message that the one who truly owns the world is in the process of purchasing it back. The temptation is about who owns the world. The number 40 is associated in the Bible with testings. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses, the backside of the desert, preparing for leadership with Israel for 40 years. The number 40 associated with the trials trials and t- testings. Now, what's, what is the devil doing here? <clears throat> 
Remember the voice that spoke from heaven. That's the Father's voice. I think it's the only place in the Bible where that's ever recorded. And the Father gives his benediction upon the Son. The Son who associates with sinners becomes Isaiah's suffering servant. The Father says, this is my Son, the one who is with sinners, the one who is obeying my my will to rescue sinners. This is the one in whom my favor rests. Right? Satan, the devil, no doubt hears this. And 40 days later comes with to revisit this. Let's go back to the scene, Jesus, at this baptism, the voice from heaven. If you are, in the beginning of the temptation starts with, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Uh, make loaves out of them. He's insinuating to Christ that the Father who spoke at his, ba- at his baptism can no longer be trusted. It's an identical temptation to the, to the temptation in the garden. True life will never be found listening to your father. Jesus, you better wake up to what's real in the world. And the only thing that's real is, is the will to survive. And if you've got the power to feed yourself, you're an utter fool to trust in your heavenly father's approval and love for you because look at where this has led you. And no doubt Jesus looked like a, a, almost like a survivor of a concentration camp perhaps at this point. What could be more obvious, Jesus, than your father's not caring for you? You see how insinuating, how wicked the temptation is. You can feel the, the hatred of the devil toward the father. Look at where trusting the Father gets you. Temptations expose the heart. Temptations expose the heart. And so we have Jesus' response, and we will cover his response in just a minute, but we have his response. Satan cannot get to the heart of Christ. Can't get there. He tries. What we discover is that Christ's heart has been formed with deep core values that are unshakable. And there's an unshakable understanding of what it means to be a human being. To be human is to take the posture of a servant who listens. To be human is to take the posture of a servant who listens. Evidence of God's goodness is not the question. Has God spoken? And if God speaks, that's the priority. What's the devil after? Listen to me and you'll find life. Ultimately, it's not about the ability to do magic or miracles, I should say. Um, What's it about? Well... Do you know how Jesus survived in the wilderness? He survived because he listened to me. That's what's underway. So, 
This is a temptation that is bodily, but is also very spiritual. Who runs the world? Well, who do human beings listen to? Who do they listen to? Temptation relates to what one wants. A bank teller. How about this? Someone handling money for 30 years never steals a penny. Why not? It's not in their heart. It's just not there. Now, the bank robber, not around a lot of money at all, but the money's in their heart, right? Willing to do crazy things, risk their own life for some extra cash. For the bank teller, it just remains part of their job and they handle thousands of dollars a day. The lust for it doesn't get into their heart. In a sense, it's a real temptation, isn't it? It's a real temptation. Jesus is a human being, wants to eat. Certainly seems to be a real temptation. But in another sense, if Jesus' will is so committed to the Father, if it's so formed to, to obey like a normal human being was designed to obey, it's interesting. Could this temptation ever have worked? Interesting. I'll let you figure that out. Could it have ever worked? Jesus obeys the Father because he loves the Father. And obedience flows out of this love. He has no love for the devil. He has no love or affection for evil. Again, note, again, I want you to hear this. Most temptation is rooted in something we want. Again, the bank teller around money all the time, well, they need money, but it doesn't own them. Think about this. You are tempted and respond to the temptation. If you respond sinfully, that want owned you. That want owned me. And there's other wants and other things that you maybe perceive as needs. They don't own you at all. But we all have our own proclivities, our own weaknesses. It's called the flesh. The temptation is rooted in, I better take charge of my life. I'm alone. I don't have the promises from God at this moment. How do you do when you feel that and you think that? I'm all alone. I've only got my own will and strength. I better choose what I need to choose. I don't have the promises of God. It's a beautiful thing when you're feeling weak and tempted And the flesh is crying out to you to obey. It's a beautiful thing, first of all, to resist and then to watch how the flesh subsides. I'm giving you the Puritan John Owen hundreds of years ago. He talked about the flesh and its cries. And the flesh cries out, fulfill me. I can lead you. I know what to do. What, you're going to not listen to me? The flesh is crying out. And John Owen says, well, just resist. And he uses the illustration... It's kind of a hard graphic one, but he uses the illustration of a crucified man on a cross and says, well, when someone is crucified, at first they have all kinds of strength and power. But just wait an hour. Just wait two hours. This is John Owen, the Puritan, years ago. And he parallels that image with our flesh. And it's really true. 
How do we resist the flesh, its impulses, the temptations? How do we do it? The Puritans called this mortification of flesh. The, the root word means to kill. How do we do it? Well, hang in there. Hang in there for five minutes. Hang in there for 50 minutes and watch what happens. The cry of the flesh on the second round, third round, fourth round is weaker and weaker. It's really true, isn't it? I heard someone in the business world describe that they're, they're in a conference room and they're hearing some things that they really are going to react to and they don't like. <laughs> and they're about to say something sarcastic, unkind, and they're, they're around the conference table and they're just hanging on. And what they do is they take the bottle of water that's in front of them and they say to themselves, all right, I won't say anything until I drink the whole bottle. So they're slowly sipping away at the bottle, giving themselves time, right? So they're not reacting. Temptation is rooted in something you want. And the devil comes and says, well, you're a human being. You, you, you give in to your wants and desires all the time, you human beings. Not this one. This one was filled with the food of God's promises. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every nutritional element of the revealed will of God. There's nutrition. It's, it's better than the protein you get from chicken. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? He's talking about living. He's talking about living for human beings. If God's goodness to you is sort of vague, and the promises are sort of vague, right? And I'm not, we're here to help. If the promises of God toward you are sort of vague, or justification by faith alone, who Christ is for you, you've got a Savior, if that's a little bit vague for you, here's what's going to happen you're going to encounter suffering and suffering will seem intolerable because you don't have any reserves in you that can satisfy you. You'll be prone to self-pity if you're a very prideful person. So if, what's the task here? Jesus had always been, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, Jesus had always been living off the Father's word in other parts of the Gospels, he says, I do only that which I hear the Father saying. I only do that which I, I, I see the Father doing. All right, this leads us to our third point, the response of Christ. What does this say to us? Well, what's going on is a matter of interpretation. How do you interpret the fact that you're in the wilderness, the Father has spoken, and you have? it looks like you're going to die? Where's this going, Jesus? I live in the real world <clears throat> as the devil. I don't know where you live, but this isn't going to work. It's a matter of interpretation. What's going on? The insinuation has been presented. If you are the, uh, the favored son, uh, you're the favored son. This is a this is a joke. 
you're the favored son. Let's face reality, Jesus. What's real is your need in this moment. Grasp the moment. Take charge of your life. Grasp what is obvious and act accordingly. And Jesus quotes a time of training and testing in Deuteronomy 8. A sermon from Moses, man shall live by bread alone. Excuse me, by every word of God, not by bread alone. Bread has a role, but it is secondary. The passage is communicating to us something about our relationship to Scripture. Now, when a preacher is talking about Scripture, it's easy to just say, let's be people of the book, and all right, and we all, everybody kind of gets riled up, and yep, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'll read my Bible more, and uh, it's, it's sort of easy to do. Um, it's also easy to inflict guilt on people because we all sort of feel a bit badly about our Bible reading, right? <clears throat> so uh, we'll let the guilt uh, be God's business today. I will try to stay out of that business a bit. Uh, but there's option one and there's option two when it comes to figuring out the Bible for us. Here's how it works. Option one is information. Uh, this means that you are looking at the Bible for information. And uh, you collect data and interesting insights, and you keep doing that. You sort of like speed a bit. So, for instance, if you're reading a Bible book and you look and go, how many more chapters are there in here? Oh, good, I'm almost done. So, you ever done that with a novel, right? You look ahead. Oh, I'm only... So, it's sort of the it's efficiency, right? It's the efficiency model. So, it's really important that you read the Bible through in a, in a year, right? That's kind of big in, in Christian circles. Well, if you do that, hey, great. Uh, I, please don't hear me discouraging you with that. But maybe it'd be important for you to read the Bible through in four years. My point is, is that information itself is leaving us without being transformed. There is a, a massive amount of Christian information out there, a massive amount um, conferences, books, blogs, on and on. Where is the transformation? So how are we thinking about the Bible itself? Oh, well, that's interesting. John said this. Jesus said that. We take, and what it is is that we're just collecting data, points, but it's never becoming integrated into our lives. So how we are listening is for efficiency and for information. Colossians 3, 5, let's, take, let's, let's listen to how Paul uses the information of the Bible. Ready? Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, chosen ones, holy and, excuse me, put to death what is earthly in you, Colossians 3, 5. Now, is that just information? Not quite. Put to death in you evil desires. Paul goes on in verse chapter 3 of 12 of Colossians, just real quickly. Put on as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, put on love. Well, it's easy to go to a conference for three days and hear all kinds of amazing speakers and all kinds of great information. 
Uh, but then you come home and it's hard to put on love for your family or your co-workers. So the way we're approaching Scripture is not helpful. And what we're encountering here is, an in, is Christ who has been formed by the Word of God. So option two is God's Word is for my formation. So if you want to take a note, you want to apply this to your heart, you say, huh, this is how I'm responding to temptations now. What does God call me to do to believe? How should I turn to him in the temptation itself? And this will require reflection and more reflection and more reflection. You can see it in if you are a reader of Christian literature. You can see. I have a couple of volumes of books downstairs of, of Puritans who write. There was one, John Flavel. He, it's beyond. It's Revelation three. Revelation three twenty. Jesus says, a "Knock, behold, I knock. If you open the heart, you open it right. Come in, I'll sup with you." <laughs> Talk about a reflective time a, a couple hundred years ago. He does not have efficiency in mind when he writes his commentary on this passage. I think he has 20 insights into the passage itself, but it's not just information. This man is writing from a reflective heart. The scriptures are forming his heart. You can feel it. it there is a qualitative difference in the way Christian writers are writing today as opposed to just a few years ago. Elizabeth Elliot, if you don't know who she is, you need to read her stuff. That is, that is a woman who was formed by the word of God. Her, her, her responses, her emotions, her perspective, her interpretation, what she had been formed by the word of God. I am fearful that we live in an age that I don't know if we're going to produce many more Elizabeth Elliots and just 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 my little cynical shouldn't perhaps think that way. That is a that is a person who was formed by the word of God. What are we watching here in the wilderness? Someone who thinks the word of God continually. Jesus has a heart that is formed by the words of God. And what are we to do when we seek to be formed by the word of God? Here it is. We are looking to find God in the text. That's the key. I read. I want to find my Savior. I want to find the gospel. I want to find God in the text speaking to me. This requires slowness, reflection, requires prayer. But God will build you up. God will lift you up if you are discouraged by failing to resist temptation. If you're discouraged by failing to, to sort of you know God's will, but you don't feel like you have the, the strength to do it, God will honor 
the cry of the heart that says, Lord, in weakness I come to you. I'm before Matthew chapter 3. Teach me, O God. Let me see you in the scriptures. Feed my heart. I'm here. And if you don't, if you don't feel like there's been anything that happened on Monday, come back on Tuesday. I'm here again, O Lord. Now, do you think God is going to sort of be distant from anyone who cries out, I'm here, Lord, I want your presence in the scriptures. I'm here. And again, you feel sort of a, it doesn't quite, nothing really quite happens. And you, there's always Wednesday. And now you keep moving, you keep moving. You will sense God's presence in the scriptures for you. And the result will be, you will be built up and you will be courageous with your faith and you will be stronger. Somehow in suffering, there is the temptation to attack others or to withdraw into self-pity. We live in a reactive age. Everyone, it's like you're talking to people and you've got to be very careful. You're walking on eggshells lest you offend someone. We don't have a capacity to suffer today. And this is where... Our cha- the needs change, the wants change. David Pallison is so correct when he says that our redemption is fundamentally about changing our wants. Now, I, if you're like me, you can be impulsive. didn't realize I was going to be buying a candy bar at the grocery store. Now I'm eating it in the grocery out in the, out in the parking lot, right? That impulse buy. We tend to be reactive and not reflective before we act. The word is to form our emotional responses to life. The word is to bolster our pain threshold, our ability to forbear with someone who irritates you, our ability to move towards someone who seems to be adverse to you or a complainer or a gossip, the ability to move with power and to not be controlled by your emotions. Emotions are fantastic. I would not want a Christian life without emotions. But they are terrible masters. So I want to commend to you this Savior. Watch him, first of all. Watch him and let your worship of him be concentrated on on him. And then notice the insinuation of Satan. That the Father's goodness can never be trusted. You must take charge of your life. And of course, the more we know God's faithfulness and see the story of Scripture, we see the lie of that. And then watch for us, watch how Christ responds. Responds as one who has been formed by the Word of God. His desires, his hungers are different. May God renew our hearts as we travel with Jesus in the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are so faithful that you have given us the scriptures and we do not worship the Bible, O God. 
But we thank you for the Bible because it reveals to us your kindness and goodness. It reveals to us Jesus. We love you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.